Heavenly Father, as we, um, as we come to this incredibly tender text, I really simply just ask that you would give each and every heart in this room exactly what they need from it. Whether they came in here joyful, whether they came in discouraged, whether they came in feeling shameful, whether they came in feeling full of hope, whether, whether they came in knowing you, walking with you for 32 years, whether they're, 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 they've been asking questions maybe the last few weeks, whether, whether, they're, whether they're here and they feel like they were drug here. I just pray that you give each and every one of us exactly what we need. But of all the things that we ask, what every person in this room needs, whether they've been longtime Christians or they're still not even sure what to think about Jesus, God, what all of us need is that we would leave this time more impressed, more confident, more convinced in what he's done, more full of joy and expectancy of what he promises to do. Holy Spirit, would you come and lift Jesus high and draw our hearts after him? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 15. Just to give a little context, we'll do verses 1 through 3 and then go down to verse 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, being Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property with reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robes and put it on him and put, on, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Feel free to grab a seat. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Luke, begins his chapter um, on this section of verses with what he would say is his favorite description of God's love. It's from A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, 
It has no limit. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. It's an incredible description of God's love, but Hughes goes on and says, as good as it is and as true as it is, there's often a a challenge or a problem with that description. It's that it's abstract. It's hard to feel an immeasurably vastless, shoreless, bottomless sea, God's love being so expansive that it cannot be contained. And yet, what does that actually feel like? What does that look like? How does that play out in, in our actual lives? And to answer that question, Jesus gives us a story. He puts this story right into a relationship. He puts it into the relationship between a father and a wayward son to try to give us some sense of his love for us. Now, as many parents know, a child can cause a type of pain and an ache and a sorrow and a worry like few other people. Now, it goes the other direction, too. Parents can cause that for their their children. The parent-child relationship is one of the most intimate and personal, intertwined, sharing your everyday moments, sharing your, your big wins, sharing your traumas, sharing a home, sharing a table, sharing day after day and moment after moment and year after year. Something that often rings true is the older a child gets, the more they can hurt you. The more the relational fractures sting. You know, there is a difference between a three-year-old getting angry and throwing a tantrum and saying, I hate you. And when a 34-year-old says it. And the reason I bring that up is this parable is an adult son, old enough to leave, looking at his father, And in effect saying, I wish you weren't alive. For him to get his inheritance, it wasn't a wrong thing for him to receive an inheritance at some point, but inheritances come upon the passing of a person. And so when he looks at his father and says, and I just want you to get the the rawness of this, that fracture in that moment had to be brutal. And the more you understand the overwhelming pain that the father must have endured, the more you understand the stage of which Jesus has set to try to highlight God's love. Most people know this story is the parable of the prodigal son. If you look at your Bible and my Bible, that's what the little um, bold or italic title is above these verses, the parable of the prodigal son. And he's no doubt a prodigal, but I think what's, it's, it's unfortunate, partly because as we'll see next week, it's actually a story of two sons that wandered a younger son that we have in this text and an older son. But I think even more to the point, why, why I think that's an unhelpful title is this isn't truly and most fundamentally a parable about either son, but actually the father. Let me look at the, let's look at the text again. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And then in these descriptions, you see the father show up. We didn't finish the chapter, but we'll see him with, we see him with the young son. We see him with the elder son. We, it's really a story about the love of the father for those that run however they run. As I prepared this sermon, the uh, song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, it just kind of kept playing in in the back of my head. It was just kind of this repeating soundtrack 
Um, so, much, so much so that the, the lyrics began to actually shape the structure of, of this sermon, starting with this first line, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. We see this unmeasurable vastness in flesh, right? This absolute, and how vast beyond all measure. How do we measure it? With five verbs. These five actions of the Father, all loaded in one verse, in verse 20, that the Father, he, he saw, he felt, he ran, he embraced, he kissed. Jesus is giving some description of this deep love of the Father, this love that goes higher and deeper and wider and longer than our sin and our foolishness and our rebellion, a love that is vast beyond all measure. He saw. I love one of my favorite things about having an iPhone and having my kids have iPhones. There's a lot of really negative things. But one of my favorite things is find my friend. I can track my kids no matter where they go. Amen? Anyone else? All the kids say boo, and all the parents say yay. I can pull it out, and I can, I can see on a map. I can see. I checked this morning. Don't tell him. I checked this morning. I, one of my sons was spending the night somewhere. I was like, is he still there? I wanted to see my daughter. It was pretty early, so it's like, I hope she's in her dorm room, you know, 256 miles away. So I'm looking at it. And then my other kids were in the house, and so there they were. I love this find my front. And most of it, most of it, I'm just going to be honest, most of it is not spying on them. Small amount. Like 99% is spying on them. But... No, it's, most of it really isn't spying on them. There's just something that happens in a parent's heart when you go, I know where they are. His father didn't know. He didn't, he didn't have find my friend. He didn't have find my iPhone. He couldn't pull out an app and hit ding and say, please come home. He just had to wait. He just had to, had to sit there in all of that sadness and all of that sorrow and it likely wasn't a very short amount of time. I mean, for his son to take this wealth, this, this, this father was very wealthy. The details of this text help to describe that. And he takes all of this wealth that's handed to him, and he goes off into a distant land, and he squanders it. It takes time to squander a lot of wealth. And then the, the famine in the land that, that rises up that creates the economic situation where he couldn't get a job. It takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. This could have been, it could have been months it likely wasn't days or weeks. It could have been months. It, it likely could have been years. And the father doesn't know. But it doesn't mean he wasn't looking. You know, the question we have is, how does he see him from a long way off? How does the father notice the sun out there on the, the horizon? You know, did he just happen in that moment to, to glance up? Was he, was he, you know, just wandering around his estate and just happened to see his son? I would suggest to you, I think he saw him because he was looking for him and he never stopped looking for him. You get this picture of the father standing on the edge of his property and just gazing off into the horizon. How oh, will this be the day? Is he gonna come back? I don't know what's happened to him, but boy, I miss him. You know, we see it with the response of the father. Oh, he, he was lost, and now he's found. He was, he, was, he was as good as dead. He was dead, and now he's alive. Like, I mean, what must have been going on in his, his heart? It's just stunning. We get a picture of a father day after day longing to see his son. And when he finally did, he was overwhelmed with emotion. <laughs> 
He, he saw and he felt. He felt compassion. The, the word to, to feel compassion, it can also be to, to feel great affection, to have deep pity. It, it literally means, the word literally means his bowels churned. It was gut-wrenching for him. A year ago, November, so Thursday mid-morning, and uh, that's usually sermon prep time, and, and uh, my phone rings, and it's, you know, caller ID, it's my wife, and so I, I'm excited to talk to her, and so I pick it up, and the voice on the other line was not my wife. And the next words out of this person's mouth was this, I am here with your wife, she's okay, and the ambulance is on the way. My entire body reacted. It wasn't a like, oh, thank you for that information. <laughs> I felt it in my, my gut. And so I, I jump in the car, I race to the, to the ER, um, and the whole time I'm just, I'm, I'm physically engaged in this experience. There's something that feels like an, there's an ache when you don't know. There's an, there's an ache when someone that you love is hurting. And, and so I'm, I'm sitting then, I get to the hospital, I try to beat the ambulance, obviously obeying all of the speed laws. And so I get to the, the hospital and I could tell that I was there before her because I was tracking her on find my phone. <laughs> and uh, so I, I stood by the doors where, where they're, gonna, they're gonna pull the ambulance off. And when they, when they opened the doors and I saw my wife in there in just so much pain. Oh, I just felt pity. I felt compassion and affection. I want to do anything to make it better. It was gut-wrenching. Now, as an aside, I always get permission to share stories, and so you don't wonder or ask Katie what happened. Uh, she passed out during a medical procedure. Uh, she fell down. They thought she broke her ribs. Uh, she ended up being fine. She's pretty bruised, but she was okay. Okay. King's Kaleidoscope's newest album, um, Baptized Imagination, has a number of songs I just think are stunning. One of them is the song, You and I Again. The lyrics of it could have been written from the young son's inner dialogue as he's making his way back to his father. As he wakes up to his condition, we have that in verse 17. He's hungry. He comes to himself. He realizes what a mess he's made of his life, 14 through, verses 14 through 16. I mean, the scene here of like, you had so much You've lost it all. You're now a, a, a young Jewish boy serving pigs. That would have been in that culture the, the, the greatest insult that could have, have happened. And then verse 19, the speech he rehearsed, I'm no longer, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's a moment where the son wakes up, well, I can't believe what I have done. And he's coming back. You got to imagine he's asking questions like, will he take me back? Will he be angry? Will he forgive me? Now to quote this song by King's Kaleidoscope, there's this, these questions that come up, and I would suggest to you they're questions that come up for almost, I would say, everyone in this room at moments, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, before whatever group of affirmation you're looking to have affirmation. So we have these moments of coming to our sense and realizing what we've done. Could you carry all my shame since I never seemed to change? Could you? Will your feelings ever fade? Could you think of me the same? Could you? Is this like one too many times? Is, it, is this thing that, I, is it just so bad? That God's just, it, finally he's done. He's finally done. 
Verse 20 is the answer to those questions. That's why this story puts the love of God on display. It's in the most, one of the most intimate of relationships. It's one of the most painful situations. And in that spot, the immediate reaction of the father is he sees and he, and, he, and, he, and he feels this down in his gut movement towards his son that he sees on the horizon and then he runs. He runs. He makes a beeline towards his son. And every commentator makes the same insight on this. To have a, 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 an older Jewish patriarch run at this time was unheard of. It would have been shameful. You would have to pick up your, your tunic and put it between your legs. Everyone publicly would have known what his son did in an honor and shame culture. They would have, they, they, this would have been so embarrassing. And he doesn't care. The father just sees him and feels for him and he runs. He just makes a beeline to him. He runs. He doesn't recoil. He runs. He doesn't rebuke. My favorite line of the song, you and I, again, after these questions of, are you going to feel the same? Am I, could, could, you, could you help me with the shame that I feel? My favorite line is this, maybe the mess of me only grips at your heart. Maybe my my stuff, maybe, maybe my sin, maybe my rebellion, it doesn't push the father away. It actually makes him pursue stronger. Jared Wilson draws out this insight from his book, Love Me Anyway. Um, he's like, imagine this scene. A child gets so angry with his mom, so angry, just looks at his, his, his mom and says, Mom, I hate you. You know, what's the mom do in that, that moment when she's momming well? She doesn't go, well, you know what, sometimes I hate you too. You know, some, we have, we've, we've done those things. We've said words like that, but that's, we look back, we don't say like, I should write a parenting book now. Like that's not typically the response in that moment. No, what would she do? She's heartbroken, she's hurt, she's fighting back tears, and she's gonna look at her son or her daughter and say, you might hate me, but I will never hate you. I love you so much. The hurt is real, but it doesn't change the love. Jared Wilson, he goes on and says, and if anything, sometimes the love actually becomes more ferocious. Oh, I, I, I want to get your heart. I want to get you back. Why did he run? So he sees, he feels, he runs. It's so could he embrace him that much sooner. He runs to the, to the son and he embraces him. It literally means, the word literally means to fall upon his neck. It's this physical picture of, of longing and connection. And, you know, sometimes a well-placed and well-timed hug is, is better than a thousand sermons that says God forgives you. And this is a text saying the father sees you in all of your sin and all of your rebellion and all of your mess and he falls upon your neck and says, you're mine, you're mine. Oh, I didn't want you to go, and I'm so glad you're back. Um, oh, I'm not going to say these names correctly, but Guo Gongtang and his wife, Zeng Wing, a uh, two-year-old son was playing at a neighbor's house and never made it home. It launched um, a massive search party as people began to canvas the neighborhood, try to find where he was, try to locate him. You know, and after time, the search party begins to die down, except for his parents. They continued searching for 24 years. 
They kept looking and looking and looking. And actually, they, they turned this into, uh, there's a movie based on this. Um, the dad, one of the stories in the dad is he, he spent 24 years crisscrossing China on a motorcycle, drove 300,000 miles to find his son. And he had these, he'd have these banners kind of coming off the back of, of the bike. And it, it was it's pictures of him as a two-year-old and, and just, son, where are you? Dad is looking for you to come home. 24 years, they finally found him. There was a, um, the parents received this call that through DNA matching, they were able to confirm that they had found their son. And so they get this phone call on a Sunday and they say, we know where your son is. And they, you know, they're, they're running. They are getting there as fast as they can. And then they get in there and they fall upon his neck. You want to see what it looks like? Let's show you a picture that's the, that's the first moment that they saw their son after 24 years, and they just say, oh, you're, you're home. We're going to do the next picture. Jesus tells stories to make God's love real. Oh, I know what it's like to sit in your sin and your rebellion and, your, and all the things that you wish you hadn't done. And when you turn and you come back, the Father, he falls upon your neck. And embraces you. The mom holding her baby, whispering in his ear, my darling, my darling, my darling, we found you, my son, my son. The father, he was interviewed many times, but one of the interviews, he just said this. He said, our child has been found from now on. Only happiness is left. Now, this couple's son had done nothing wrong. The son in our story has done everything wrong. How much better is it that the father sees and feels and runs and embraces? I love how Alistair Begg says it. Oh, I wonder, do you know this God? A God who swallows you up in grace. There's nothing that makes our sinfulness so obvious. There's nothing that makes the wonder of God's manifest goodness so unbelievable to us then when we bring our utter unworthiness into the context of that expression of the Father's love. He sees, he feels, he runs, he embraces, and then he kisses. The, um, the word he means to kiss uh, means kisses many times or kisses with great affection and tenderness. And what you see in these verbs, these verbs of the Father to try to show the vastness of the Father's love is this, this kind of ever-escalating dis. dis- and display of intimacy, of longing, you're mine. As he ran to him, you're mine. As he holds him, you're really mine. As he holds him and he kisses him, oh, you're mine. You notice the order in this text. It wasn't the son's repentance. It wasn't his sorrow. It wasn't his works. It wasn't his speech that stirred compassion in the father's heart. The faster was looking before he ever came back. The father was longing for him to return. Returning now has to happen. This word repentance means to turn. It's leaving where we are and going back. That has to happen so we can be embraced by God. But it's not the thing that that stirs and and, and, and nurtures his heart to, to be disposed to receiving us. If you come home to the father, you can be sure that's the reception you will get. I want you to also notice the speech. 
If you look at verses 18 and 19, I will arise, go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then he goes back and then in verse 21 begins to say the same thing. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's similar but not the same. There's a, there's a phrase missing. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, the son's plan was to say, I've lost my sonship. I've sinned so badly, I can no longer be a son. So what I'll be is a servant, and what I'll go back and do, because I've taken the goods my father has given me, I will go back now as a servant, and I will work off my debt. I will, I will do all the work I can to try to pay him back for the offense that I've caused, but the father will have none of it. He'll have none of it. He's like, you will not pay me back. We see it in verses 22 and following or, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. You know, look at the details of that text. It's not just a robe. You know, imagine the son's condition at this point. He, he was starving. He'd been out in a pig trough. He was broke. He was broken. His condition... The father could have said, let's get him a bath. He's got an older brother. We can borrow one of his tunics. We can get him some hand-me-down sandals. He says, no, bring, bring the best robe. The best robe at this time would have been the father's own robe that would have been worn at very special occasions. And what he does to his son who's so covered in shame is he covers him with, with the father's glory. He just puts it on him. And then he grabs a ring, and, and most commentators would say the ring is what's known as a signet ring. It's the ring that represented the family. It's the, it's the ring that you, you wore when you sealed a contract, as wish to say, I, am, I have full legal rights as a representative of this family. Oh, you're not a servant, you're my son. Fat and calf at this time, you know, as in many places around the world today, meat was not on the menu very often. And a fattened calf would have been the best of meat that you could actually get, one that was set aside for very special purposes, one that was cared for in such a way that when you, when you, when you sacrificed it, you did so in a way that was, would, would be a public celebration. It was very special, very valuable, and it was very public because the entire town would get invited to whatever feast was about to happen. Now, let me continue the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son. The song helps us see something alluded to in this parable and clearly shouted throughout the Bible. The ultimate expression, the vastness of the Father's love, this immeasurable scope of who he is, is best seen in the giving of his son. The offense to the Father is massive, our debt is real, our sin is real, but God's grace in Jesus is greater still. Now, I want to be careful with this, but um, remember this is a parable. Parables don't tell us everything that we see in the Bible. We got to be careful about pressing every detail of a parable to not always make one-for-one -one direct theological um, points. It, you know, we can get in some weird spots, but if we go outside the parable to other parts of the Bible, we see more clearly what's hinted at in this text. That our shame is covered, that our debt is paid, not by us, that a sacrifice is offered, not by us. Now this is the grace of the gospel, the good news, the story of how God reconciles wanderers and rebels back to his embrace. 
We see it in Jesus, the true and better son, who never wandered off, who never rebelled. Jesus' life, when, when, when God took on flesh and was, was born as a baby and named Jesus, his name means the Yahweh saves, the Lord is salvation. See, he lived what we were meant to live. He lived the life of an obedient son before a good father, always honoring, always obeying, always presence, always faithful, always surrendered to the will of the Father. But he never wandered off into a distant land. And through faith, what we're given through Christ, the story of the gospel is one where, where Jesus, who lived flawlessly, did so that we might by faith be found in him. It's called united to Christ. And what happens is like this symbol of this, this robe, that what happens is that we, we enter into Jesus and his righteousness, his perfection, his spotless apparel. God sees us as if we're wearing his obedience. He looks at us not in the, the pig trough decisions we've made, but in the righteous acts of Christ, the best robe, the true and better robe. We see it in Jesus, the true and better sacrifice, who lived in our place and then died in our place, not as a fattened calf, but what Christ was known as, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that we might be covered and declared right and that we might be forgiven as Christ took the debt that we caused and then three days later rose again as a declaration that the debt was paid, that sin had been done with. Christ Jesus in the story of the gospel is, is the fullest display of God seeing, of God feeling, of God running, of God embracing, of God kissing. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it in Life Together. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. And think about that situation for the, for the young son as he's sitting there in what he feels like he cannot fix. Oh, how often we stay away because we just are so embarrassed. How often, we stay, how often I stay hidden because I'm just so full of shame. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone, but it is the grace of the gospel that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner you are, to the God who loves you. He wants you as you are. Let me continue this song. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Now, there's something I do every single time that I can remember when I sing that song. We sing that song a lot here. It's one of my favorite songs. Um, there's something I do, and typically it's how deep the Father's love for us. And I usually have like one hand in a pocket. I don't know why. Um, but the other hand, it's always, it's, kind of, it's always reaching up as if to kind of try to like symbolically touch and embrace and feel this love of the Father. How deep the Father, how vast beyond me. I'm usually, my eyes are closed and I'm usually squinting like this. And then we sing the, the line, it moves on, who makes a wretch. And I almost always take my hand and I take it and I put it on my heart and I go, a wretch. There is something that, hit, and I usually say this wretch. I personalize it. There is something that happened Friday morning for me as I was thinking and praying and staring at this text. Here's what I realized. I always take my hand and I say, who makes this wretch? And then it goes off of my heart before I say, his treasure. And what's happening there is what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm making the emphasis, oh, I'm a wretch. And I stop short of the punchline. I'm his treasure. 
I think so many of us do that. I think so many of us do that. I recognize the deep, deep love of the Father. I'm not minimizing that. I, I, I recognize my sinfulness. I, I, I'm trying not to minimize that, but you know what I'm minimizing? I'm his treasure. I far too quickly blow past or I'm so blinded to that because of my sin, my, but I think it's because I, I'm focused on the wrong thing. Look at the text. Look what the Father says. My son. He'd say, you rebel. Say, how dare you? You idiot. You failure. You screw up. You sinner. Oh, hey, those things are true. But you know what he does in the midst? And remember the condition of the son. He is not cleaned up when he comes back. He has hurt the father. If you are an adult with adult children, you know the pain. And he just grabs him and just says, my son. You know, what's, what's loudest to you? Wretch or treasure? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but worthy has nothing to do with it. He's not worthy to be called a son, but God doesn't care. In this way, this relationship is, a, is a, in a very powerful way is one-sided. It's not contingent upon you and it's not contingent upon me. It's the very heart of God for sinners and strugglers to say, my son, my daughter. The father chooses to love anyway. The robe, the ring, the sandals, the party, the celebration. There's an asymmetry. This is uh, what's landed on me Friday morning. It lingered in the background, but it really got crystallized just through this action. Oh, I'm such a wretch. As opposed to, oh, I am such a treasure. Both can be true, both are true, but what's the loudest? And I think there's an asymmetry that God wants us to feel. I see it throughout the Bible, this asymmetry between our sin and his grace, our rebellion and his love. You know, we might say it's like the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Exactly. Emphasis on the wrong syllable. Um, we're just putting the focus in the wrong spot. This parable is saying it's not about how much you've wandered, it's about how much God loves. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond the measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. John Owen in his book, Communion with the Trying God, says it like this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. And this parable is trying to help us know that and to feel that and to enter into it. The first verse of how deep the Father's, it kind of lays this greatness of God's love. We're a wretch, but he makes us a treasure. Then the song goes on and it talks about how that happens. It talks about Jesus going to a cross. It lays out the story of the gospel to bear our guilt, to be our sacrifices. But it finishes with this. This is how the song finishes. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. It's beyond It's, it's beyond but this I know with all my heart. Do you know it? Do you know it? I would say no, we don't. We don't know it with all our hearts, but we can know it better. And Christ gave this parable so we might know it better. Look at the very last verse, verse 24. For this my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father, the servants, the village, and the son. When we come to our senses and come back to the Father, don't stop until you walk through the entire story. You have a watching, feeling, running, embracing, kissing Father who wants to swallow you up in grace no matter why you need that grace and no matter what distant land you or I have come from, who wraps you in a new robe, who sacrifices the best he has, who reminds you of your most true self, which is son or daughter, and then throws a party. How deep the Father's love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd make the beauty and glory and splendor of this text real. As we sing of the deep, deep love of Jesus, we sing of the vastness and measurable, all the songs that use such big poetic language, and it's so good because our hearts can rise up to that. But that today you'd put it on, on, on planet Earth in dust and flesh and bones and tears and hugs and touch and kisses and longing Father, we ask you to make it real. Make it real. Invite every single person here, whether we need to come back to you for the thousandth time or whether we never had. Help us turn and run to you, knowing the reception we'll receive. How deep your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.